Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Rachel Aston. This here is a special edition of the podcast to mark a very special edition, our first. Yes, you're listening to the first ever edition of the Fictionable Podcast to mark the first ever edition of Fictionable, summer 2022. So what have we got for our star-studded launch issue? We've got Sarah Hall with Be Good. We'll be talking with Sarah in a minute. And then there's Alain Moboncou, translated by Helen Stevenson, with My American Cousin, Lady Hubbard with Tupperware, Owen Booth with The Things They Don't Talk About, and Isabel Greenberg with Confinement. And here they all are. The kitchen window is open. It's very warm for spring. A breeze stirs the branches of the tree opposite, pale leaves and dark leaves flickering. You pour a cup of coffee into your favourite mug and sit at the table. Not long now. There's a heat wave in New Orleans. It's the last day of my holiday, after a week in France. Tomorrow morning, I fly home to Los Angeles. I've been walking all morning. Now, I'm heading back to my hotel. After she threw up, she felt much better. She always did. Alone in the bathroom of her brand new condo, washing her hands with a shell-shaped soap. She dried them with a monogrammed guest towel, then opened the door and walked to the kitchen, filled a glass with ice, and poured herself a rum and coke. She gulped it down, peering at her daughter over the rim of her glass. The child was seated alone... Paul has lost count of the number of times he's had a doctor's fingers up his ass, but it's well into double digits by now. Double digits? What are you going to do, not laugh? He's lost count of the number of procedures he's had too, the number of machines he's been inside or had inside him. Last week they stuck a camera down his cock and into his bladder and possibly an entire film crew along with it, judging by how it felt afterwards. It was an Oscar-winning performance, they told him when they'd finished, as if they didn't say that to everybody. I heard those Chinese lads are already selling pirate copies in the supermarket car park, Paul replied, which made the consultant chuckle. He still got it. A man sails over a wild and foaming sea. He woos a maiden and brings her home to be his wife. So far they have come, far from everything she knows. But she loves him, and so she throws it all in to be with him, her whole life. There is a strange castle on the edge of a high cliff, and there is a bleak cove where the ship pulls in, and they walk up, up, up to that cliff-top castle, and there on the steps, lit by the yellow glow of the open door, stands his mother. Wow, that's quite the opening. Yes, and that's without the full technicolour effect of Isabel Greenberg's glorious, yellowy, purpley, blood-red illustrations. Because confinement is this issue's graphic story. And a visual feast it is, too. It begins with a young woman who's fallen in love and sailed across a wild and foaming sea to live with her husband in a remote house on a cliff. With his mother, who's quite the mother-in-law. Yes. As soon as she sees her, the young woman thinks, uh-oh. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that this mother-in-law may not exactly have the young wife's... The new wife's. Yes, the new wife's interests at heart. <laughs> the third page is organised around a beautiful sweep of the house and the solitary tower where the young woman is quartered, though her husband calls it the best room in all the house. <laughs> yeah, that page finishes with a husband giving one of my favourite lines from the whole story... She just takes a little warming up, he says. My two best girls, here together. (laughs) 
There's humour in Owen Booth's The Things They Don't Talk About as well, isn't there? Or dark humour, at least. What do you mean, dark? He opens with a straightforward crack. Though I suppose it is a crack about an invasive medical procedure, so (laughs) perhaps it is gallows humour after all. Paul's in hospital because he's been pissing broken glass and razor blades for months. So he's on the urology ward with Big Jeff, millionaire Mo Khan, Skiddy Raymond and a few others until the doctors can work out what's going on with his bladder infection, which looks like it could take a while. What I really like about things is the way Owen takes this darkly comic hospital drama in not one, but two totally unexpected directions. But no spoilers, right? Okay, no spoilers. So let's move on to Lady Hubbard's Tupperware, a perfect portion of family fiction, sealed in... Well, you get the idea. Yeah, it's a difficult one to talk about without giving too much away. But but there is a mother... And a daughter... And plastic storage. (laughs) And let's just leave it at that. So, on to My American Cousin, which is Alan Mabonku, translated by Helen Stevenson. And she's written a lovely piece about how she's been translating Alan's fiction for more than a decade, which you can find on the blog alongside Kate Serkin's excellent piece about Ukrainian fiction since 2014. I love Helen's line about phrases Alan quotes emerging like old stones when the vegetation is worn away in a dry season. And what emerges in My American Cousin is the narrator as flaneur, walking the streets of New Orleans on a hot summer's day. But again, Alain takes this stroll in a totally unexpected and moving direction. Which, again, we're not going to talk about. (laughs) Ah, it's so frustrating not giving things away. (laughs) Maybe we should record a second show with spoilers when people have read all the story. (laughs) But we can talk about Sarah Hall's Be Good, can't we? Yeah, for sure. In fact... I kind of think we ought to, because it's the kind of story where you might want a bit of a heads up. Yes, some kind of signal that you might want to brace. Though we should probably say that if you haven't read Be Good yet, you might want to take a quick pause on the podcast now. Because when I spoke to her down the line from Cumbria, she pretty much got straight into it. No messing whatsoever. I began by asking her where this story started. I think as with every story, whether it's short form or long form fiction... For me, there are generally a couple of trigger points or a couple of notes of interest that work together. And for this story, I suppose it was the idea of of, of tackling climate change, because it's a very large subject. And I have done it before in a novel, but, you know, it's really on our minds. And so it's finding a, a way of telling a single story that plays into this enormous, overpowering subject that I think we're all struggling to kind of get our heads around and and to know what to do about. So really, I needed to find a a streamlined story through that. And I just have a young daughter and I I was thinking about the questions she's been asking and and the, the questions that teachers in particular are having to answer. That was it, the idea of goodness and what constitutes goodness and how to be a role model and how you answer questions and how you find your way not in a virtuous way, but in a kind of positive way through this terrible subject, which is is really difficult. That was part of it. And of course, there have been a couple of incidents lately of self-immolation. And one of them was in the news last year, attached to climate change and a feeling that it it was done as a protest for part of the cause. It's an incredibly interesting subject to me, the idea of how far you will go uh, with your own personal protest and at what point you feel like the biggest of all gestures might be relevant, how that links in with mental health and where the line is between actually being in good mental health, but the issues are so great, or where things slip over one one side and how society might view those incredible acts. What you've done there is railroaded straight over one of the issues I was wondering about, how much to give away about what's going on. 
as the reader begins the story, that danger is not yet poised. No, and I suppose with short stories, you're in territory of of, uh, deliberate withholding in a way, hopefully not in a coy way or a tricksy way, so the reader feels that they're being messed with. But I think, particularly with a short, short story, and I would consider this, for me... (laughs) A short, <laughs> short story. It's kind of taking me into my uh, out of my comfort zone of longer short stories and in, into uh, something else. But it's really about disclosure and how how the reader is taken on a journey. So yes, not everything should be known up front. I don't think um, there are perhaps clues in there, and there's a gradual process of of disclosure. What's going on? You realise that the character has these strong feelings, you know, the spring's a bit too warm, you know that there's a social conscience there, but you're not quite sure how it's going to relate to everything else. And I suppose I wanted this kind of subtle turning over of cards one by one until this terrible tarot is revealed. Yeah, there's this this gradual build, as you say, that takes you down this very dark road. That's kind of the process you wanted the reader to go through. It is, yeah. I mean, the short story asks for compression uh, in in a number of ways. And also, you know, the operating keys of stories are often to to kind of refine the mechanics so much that the machine is working very well in terms of plot and narrative. But beyond that, there is a kind of, you know, there's a greater machine in play and, and you need to be able to reference it and refract towards it without actually including all those details in the story. Uh, and so that's the challenge. But again, that seemed perfect for the issue of climate change. We're individuals, you know, we're families, we're kind of, we're communities and societies, and you might feel alone and small and not able to do any good and, and frustrated and overwhelmed and anxious because of this huge issue that surrounds us. So it seemed perfect to tackle this particular issue, which pits the individual against an enormous burden in a way I suppose she you know she or he actually it's not a not a gendered narrator is burdened and and has to kind of find their way as an individual through well whatever they're finding their way through yeah well that's the thing isn't it I mean and I guess with a short story like this you've got all of those larger issues ballooning around it and that individual thread which as you say feels very much like our own situation was it obvious that it that you wanted it to be told in the second person I do like the second person and I find it very interesting when I want to play with a sense of perspective. So there is this effect on the reader. If there's a sort of intimacy that's created and you might be I, you might be the reader. The reader is somehow encouraged into the story in an often uncomfortable way. And so there's an additional onus to kind of think about perspective and think about where you are in relation to this matter. What would you, Mr or Mrs Reader, Oh, Ms. Reader, what would, you know, what would it be like for you? What are, what are the triggers for you? What, what's the situation for you? How would you uh, find your way through the subject? Uh, at what point would you take grand steps towards uh, an issue? And I suppose that's, it's difficult for me to talk about because it's a natural way of writing for me. So I find mm. myself using it frequently and it seems to enable me to approach subjects which are very large, very difficult and disquieting, which is probably all of them, frankly. Um, <laughs> so, but again, it just seemed the right way of tackling this particular incident because it's a big ask of the reader, I think, to kind of journey through this story. It's a big ask, but it's also an interesting issue for them to think about. You do use you quite a bit, but you use it subtly differently. I mean, this one, you is a voice that puts the reader into the character's shoes. And sometimes authors try to blur the specifics of that character mm. so that they can cast their net wide as possible and reach as many readers as mm. possible as that you. But here you've got it very honed down. There's a particular person who's having a particular journey. 
That's right. And I, I do think it sort of needs to be used in an intimate way as well. So yes, this is a particular story in relation to this particular character. So I mean, in the past, I, I have kind of found myself thinking, "Ooh, why am I using this particular narrative address? And, and then having to kind of come up with a reason for it. I think in How to Paint a Dead Man, it's sort of clear that a twin has been bereaved and has, is having a kind of identity crisis. One might feel that you need to justify the decision to use it. I don't feel that way anymore. I just feel like it's a kind of natural and automatic choice and that it's going to serve a purpose intuitively yep. um, as a storyteller. And for this character, again, it felt like the right way to handle things because, you know, the character is having to separate herself or himself out from the act, perhaps, or get into a particular state of mind to go through with what's about to happen. It also reminded me slightly of the you that you use in Burnt Coat, your latest novel, which, which is a, a first-person narrator who's addressing a you who, is, again, becomes clear as a, is a very particular person. Yes, that's right. And in fact, there's a strange switch of address in Burnt Coat. The you is initially addressed to the lover of the main character, Edith, but when he dies, it becomes clear that actually behind that you there is a greater you which is death a kind of void not a personified death so and you realize that actually one thing stood for another and that the relationship with love is in fact a relationship with loss and death so it kind of works in a switchback way in burnt coat i think in sudden traveler the short story too it is a similar kind of thing of a character feeling discombobulated and tired mm. and knocked off center by grief I think a lot of my fiction positions characters and positions the reader in that way, feeling slightly out of the comfort zone, slightly moved away from normality, put under a challenge somehow. And the second person is a great way of just evoking that sense of discombobulation and uncertainty and feeling that identity has somehow slipped. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a strong story. It's an extreme situation. Did you worry to a certain extent about challenging your readers in this kind of way? I did. And I suppose the paradox of this story is what's happening is radical and the character is not or would not self-define as radical. But that also pays into the kind of questions around climate change. When is more radical action needed? What needs to be done to feel like there is traction and progress with the issue and the emergency that's happening? We find ourselves in an emergency situation. So what does radical become? Exactly. There's almost no radical in relation to the problem itself. But, you know, that's a hard line to walk in a story, pitting a typical person against an, a radical act in some way and a radical situation. It is difficult to get that balance. And, it, you know, you could argue that the paradox is so great in there that, well, it's up to the reader to find a sense of whether it works or not. Your readers will expect you to be dealing with strong stuff. You're always dealing with strong stuff. Do you feel that's what you have to do? Just follow the story where it takes you? I probably am approaching strong subjects, but then I think, well, we're, we're just involved with them in life. You know, they're there. They're, they're sort of unavoidable. And to purely be writing fiction about relationships doesn't, to me, seem truthful or realistic or dimensional. I mean, it's kind of an escapable. We just, that's what's going on in <laughs> yeah, our that, lives. Yeah, that's so. the kind of top coat of everything, you know. And, and, and I am interested in politics. I'm interested in issues. And I, I like to form a line of inquiry through my fiction as well. So, you know, I'm approaching difficult things, terrorism, fanaticism, climate change, rewilding, cults, abortion, all these, all these topics. They are very interesting. And they're I think it's important for me to sort of work them over and, and I suppose ask similar questions that a reader might be asking around a subject. I wonder if you're becoming more confident in that in a way, because I mean, looking back at your earlier work, the Carhill and Army, there's plenty of 
politics in that or even Horswater, but it's kind of distanced. Horswater's back in the 1930s and Carhullen is set in some sort of slightly near future place where we're not there yet, we hope. But recently, I mean, with Burnt Coat, with some of the stories in Sudden Traveller, with this, you're right up against our current moment. Is that a kind of expression of confidence or does it just demand your attention? No, I don't feel any more confident now than when I began. I think I always felt I wanted to approach large subjects, whether it was industrialisation. And there is a kind of almost terrorist act in Hallswater as well, but in a different capacity. I mean, the the era of the 1930s was one of moderation. So, you know, you had to kind of be careful and not to go off the rails too far in terms of plausibility. Uh, so it's a, more of a complicated act, I think, that happens in Horsewater. But I think I've always been working alongside current issues or, or even ahead of them. I mean, Carhill and Army was published in 2007. Uh, and I don't think there was too much climate change fiction around at that point. And reads very differently now. With, it with does. Kind of, with, yeah. With the nearness of that kind of unpleasantness. It really does. And, you know, it includes things like an economic collapse and uh, insurance crisis kind of mm. problems and, and all sorts of stuff. But at that point, I was reading a lot of projections. You know, I was reading up about peak oil and what might happen when oil is not brought to the market quickly enough. It's not, <laughs> not really even a question of when it runs out. It's sort of when the infrastructure is not sustainable anymore. And I feel like I always have been quite current. But it's odd, I think, because I write about landscape a lot and have written a few historical fiction novels, there's almost a sense of that I'm not a kind of radical modern writer and I'm also not writing about you know London or places like that you know it's often sort of regional locations which perhaps don't seem quite as cutting edge or they don't seem to be you think it's perceived as remote it's perceived as remote and it's not necessarily thought to be the stage against which these grand dramas will play out you know when the Thames flood barrier goes Da-da, there we have it. Well, actually, that's not the case. It's when like hundreds and thousands of rivers all around the country are flooding and lots of housing is lost and shared accommodation happens and then new tuberculosis starts to come about. So I think in some ways, if you are working in the margins, but working on current subjects, you might not be being labelled as, you know, <laughs> as a contemporary writer. When you write a story like Be Good, is there a hope somewhere in the back of your mind that it might shift something, it might change the dial? I mean, I think we all hope that, that in a number of large and small ways, the dial does begin to change, top down especially. I think bottom up is one thing, but you can't put the onus on, on the individual. So grand government schemes need to be happening. And I can't say that this story is without hope. Like the character says, you know, there's no way that you can avoid hope for change. I suppose what I'm interested in is the grand act that reveals the fact that things have got to the point that people are really, really distressed and feel really, really impotent in the situation. So there is hope, but I don't write as a kind of proselytizer. I just don't do that. That's not my fiction. My fiction is asking questions, you know, when would you become a terrorist? When would you pick up a gun and turn against the government? What would they have to do for you as an average individual to do that? So that's more the area that I'm thinking about when I'm working. But of course, in some ways, you hope that the shock of fiction, which is actually just replicating the shock of life. I was very shocked to read about, you know, the guy that went through with this last year. I was very shocked and it made me think, right, OK, this is trickling down now. This is this is not just about the scientists who are so frustrated and, and feel so pessimistic now that nothing's being done, all this data is being collected and really there's no traction. It's gone further than that. So I felt that I didn't want that act to be lost because it's very difficult to understand, isn't it? I think people still can't give up the idea that life is so, so prized that at all costs we should hold on to it. 
you know, the idea of exchanging it for an issue, I think is very foreign still in this country, particularly. You say that you want to get the reader to ask, what would they do? How far would they go? The question to you is, how far would you go? I don't know. I'm not in the situation yet. So I'll let you know when enough happens and I I end up, you know, (laughs) in the mountains of Cumbria in a paramilitary. But you're not quite there. You haven't packed kit bag. (laughs) I haven't packed the kit bag. Can't say I'm not like training in the mountains, but I've been to protests. I've been to marches. I try to do things and often feel like it's not really working. So it it is very, very frustrating. I'm not quite there yet, I don't think. (laughs) And also the hope is, you know, I am writing about it, I suppose, and, and trying to bring the issue to the table. I was trying to bring the issue to the table in 2007. Uh, And that was interesting that Carholland Army got coverage outside of the literary pages because it was dealing with issues like an economic collapse, which was beginning to sort of rear itself. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny as a writer, you're working to different timescales. A book might have an effect 10 years down the line or it might not. But it's always there on the shelf, isn't it? Always there waiting for its readers. And I think it's almost as if there is this one big issue now, isn't there? Not just one big issue but the issue is so great I can't say well I wrote a book in 2005 that was published in 2007 and that's my contribution I am now feeling again that to not think about these things to not try and tackle it would somehow be remiss of me as a writer other writers don't necessarily I'm not saying everybody should feel like that as a writer they shouldn't but you would really have to crane your neck quite far not to see this thing in front of you and think yeah you know what more stories, more stories needed about this. More stories needed indeed. That was Sarah Hall. So, how can people read all these amazing stories? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Just head to fictionable.world and click on subscribe. You can find it in the handy menu on the right hand side. It's £20 for a whole year of short fiction and comics from all over the world. And you can read them on your computer, your tablet, or even your mobile phone. But aren't we forgetting something? What? The shout-outs. <laughs> How could we forget? Well, none of this would have been possible without the help of our awesome backers on Kickstarter. So we want to say a great, big, fictionable thank you to all of you guys. And in particular... Ruth Sessions. Nell. Jim. Jonathan and Maria. Susan. Gus. Patricia Lorty. Laura Goodhart. And Lucy. We couldn't have done it without you. So massive, fictionable thanks to you all. That's it for this first edition of the Fictionable Podcast. Thanks to Sarah Hall as well and to Bill for these excellent drums. Tell us what you make of it at Fictionable World on Twitter or at Fictionable World on Instagram. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the stories as well. So email us on info at fictionable.world. So from me, Richard Lee. And me, Rachel Aspden. And our producer, Esther Apokujeni. Thanks for listening and goodbye.